Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. The Economist. In London, this is The Economist, and you're listening to Babbage, a weekly conversation on science and technology. I'm Kenneth Kukier, the data editor, and welcome to the second and final episode in our series on the ghosts of Babbage past and future. In the last episode, we looked at what would have made the Babbage podcast 100 years ago in 1915, if there had been podcasts. It was the year of Einstein's general theory of relativity and the idea of continental drift. In this installment, we look at the vantage point of 100 years hence, at what in 2115 we might have seen as the biggest stories of the year 2015. Joining me in this set of thought experiments is Oliver Morton, our Essays and Briefings Editor, and Tom Stanage, our Deputy Editor. Ollie and Tom, welcome. The year is 2115. We're looking back at 2015. What are the biggest stories? Well, let's start with what might not be. the. We, we ended our previous podcast with some thoughts about Pluto. I think it's wonderful that we saw Pluto in spectacular detail and glory, and it turned out to be absolutely and completely wonderful. But I doubt that in 100 years, when we have a much more thorough and deep sense of the solar system that we're going to be looking back at the first particular time we saw one body. But there is one possible exception to that. We did discover a lot of exoplanets this year, uh, that is, say, planets around other stars. If at some point we discover that one of those planets carries life, which we might do through through astronomy, we don't have to visit it to know that, then having been the year in which that planet was first discovered, and I'm not naming names here, there's a whole bunch of planets discovered every year, that strikes me as being the sort of thing where that is the reason you say, that's the reason you go back and say, you know, 2015, that was the year they discovered was named. Planet such and such. And in fact, there's been some progress this year on trying to name exoplanets. We now have thousands and thousands of candidate planets, as they're officially called. Uh, and then they're kind of ones they're really sure about. Uh, there's there's sort of really hundreds of those now. Um, but they've all got these rather, rather tedious names. So there was a sort of formal effort this year to give at least some of them uh, names. And in fact, <laughs> weirdly, uh, the resulting names uh, are massively skewed towards the preferences of Japanese astro- astronomical societies. It turns out Japan has a lot of astro- astronomical societies and astronomical societies societies were allowed to uh, propose things. But um, uh, inevitably, lots of names from sort of science fiction and uh, mythology were put forward as the names for some of these planets. Uh, but this is a, an example going back to our previous podcast of a sort of pre-discovery observation. If it does turn out by 2115 that one of the planets identified by the Kepler probe, you know, during 2015, or identified by people coming through the data from it, it does in fact harbour life, then people will look back and say, oh, if only they'd known back then, etc, etc. They will. They will. They'll hold us personally responsible. And who will they be? Because another 
plausibility would be one of the big stories that we've covered this year in various different ways is AI. We may be being judged by an autonomous intelligence of some sort. And this has obviously been a year where there's been a great deal of talk about AI, maybe some hype about AI, certainly a lot of worry about AI. Is it going to, people going to look back on it and say this was a big AI year, do you think, Tom? I wonder, because this is the year when it, the idea that AI might be an existential threat really sort of broke out into the public consciousness. It's something that, you know, people like you and me who read science fiction have, have been familiar with for a long time. And obviously, you know, that's the idea of Hal in 2001 being evil and so on. But this year, you know, Stephen Hawking and Martin Rees and Elon Musk started saying, we really need to start worrying about this. And um, whether or not you agree with them, that certainly got a lot of headlines. And I think put the idea that uh, AI might be, you know, like nuclear weapons are as well, a, uh, a threat to the long term survival of humanity. And there are people who um, seriously hold that view. And, uh, and, you know, people who are experts on AI may not be the best judges of this. I mean, it's famous that um, Rutherford, who we were talking about in the previous podcast, dismissed all talk of getting energy out of the atomic nucleus as, uh, as moonshine. One of the things that I've found in, well, in our coverage of AI is that although it's very exciting in some ways, it's also a very limited field in some ways. I and mean, it's very good at doing some things, but the sense of, of, uh, of actually sort of like creating scheming thinking intelligences still seems quite a long way off. I'm not sure about that. I mean, I was very impressed, as many other people were, by the um, the, the DeepMind results, uh, particularly where they got their... That was good. ...their machine learning system to learn to play old Atari video games. And uh, in particular, you know, the way it plays Breakout, it, they just left it. And it was terrible for the first 20 minutes. It didn't even move the bat and eventually figured out that, you know, you have to actually move the bat to hit the ball. And then it, uh, within you know, 20 minutes, it's better than any human player. It never misses. And then within two hours, it's figured out the actual strategy for winning, which is that you chip away at the edge of the bricks and you send the ball around the back and um, this is something that you know very skilled human players can do if they're lucky but the uh, the AI can do it flawlessly because it can control the spin. This was a, a network that was not being told to kind of do anything except maximise its score and it figured out these strategies on its own. Now that said the DeepMind AI was not very good at playing other games so um, Adventure for example another uh, classic Atari game involves doing things like picking up a key that's yellow and taking it to a yellow gate and it can't understand the sort of high level concepts like that but for these sort of basic games what was really striking about it this was not just a, a deep learning system. It was, uh, it was based on something uh, uh, based on something called a deep Q network, which is where it's actually trying to sort of learn from experience in a very uh, crude way. You know, AI is, is surprising people with, with what it can do, and it seems to be moving very fast. And maybe 2015 will be the time where people look back and say, ah, oh, look, you know, all of those predictions those people made and then, you know, the great AI catastrophe of, of 2065 or whatever, if only they'd listened to Elon Musk. I mean, but who knows? AI is an environment in which we've had lots of winters. It is indeed. Although this, this does, it does seem to be different now. I mean, there does seem to be there does seem to be progress. And the other thing is that AI has become. Uh, people use the term in a non-embarrassed way, which is like a big, big step. And it's also become part of things that people use every day. If you use Siri, you use Google Search, uh, all of these things. There's just there's sort of. You know, it's become normal. It's no longer a, a sci-fi thing in, in a lot of ways. And that really is a, a big change. And it's happened very gradually, so we haven't noticed it. But I think that is the sort of the step that AI has made, that it is unironically um, a real technology. And the real question now is how far does it go? In terms of things that have uh, changed very gradually and crept up on us, this is the year that the atmospheric level of carbon dioxide went over 400 parts per million on a kind of permanent basis. And that's not exactly an unremarked trend. We've uh, talked about it on and off. It's hardly stealthy, but it's still quite a thing. And they'll look back on that, I think, in 2115 and think of that as something of a milestone. And they may possibly look back at the Paris Agreement that's just been negotiated as a milestone too. Unless things have gone really, really badly, in which case they may look back at other things, or unless things have gone unaccountably well, in which case it may be that people just don't talk about the climate too much in 2115. Maybe, you know, 
things yeah, did get sorted. I wonder about that too, because if you look back at the early 20th century, where people were worried about where the coal was going to come from and things like that, weren't they? They were so before oil, people worried about that, and they were worried about where we were going to get enough fertilizer to grow. And we just kind of look, you know, they don't seem like problems to us these days. We kind of go, well, yeah, of course they thought that because they didn't know about oil and they hadn't figured out about the Harbour Bosch process. So, um, so I wonder whether climate will. I suspect it won't, but there is a sort of a Panglossian view that says, oh yes, we'll have figured out that fracking followed by masses of solar was the answer. And why was everyone so worried about this? I think that more likely, I, I, I think that climate will become normalised into the, the way people think about the world. I think there will be a great deal of emissions reduction over the coming century. I've no idea whether there will be enough to stave off some of the wor- worst risks of climate change. We obviously don't, in fact, fully understand the magnitude of the link between future changes in temperature and carbon dioxide levels, what's known as the climate sensitivity. There's still significant doubt about that. We don't know what people will do. It's possible that people might seek to supplement their emissions reduction with some sort of geoengineering, which is that might have become a kind of standard thing. In the same way that dikes are a sort of accepted part of the landscape of Holland, that we might say geoengineering and the big thing we have in orbit or whatever is, is normal by that time. You might be right. I'd rather hope that not. I'd rather hope that when... You have a system for distributing sunshine around the world or whatever one does with such a system that it does become, if it becomes part of the background, it becomes part of the political, social, cultural background, not just a sort of like technical fix. And I think that's actually true. To be, to be fair, of the way that lived life is in large parts of the Netherlands. It's not that it's not that people don't know about how their country, you know, the geophysical facts of their countryside. It's not a, an endless source of anguish. But I think that you know, if if geoengineering were to be part of a complex set of international arrangements about how the climate is dealt with in 2115, that might not be the worst thing in the world. Okay, so there's one other technology that we haven't actually talked about, and that's CRISPR, the idea of editing the human genome. And that, again, is a technology that has sort of come onto the radar this year. It's not um, totally new. It's a few years old now. But there have been some interesting experiments done with CRISPR. Uh, one experiment that was done by Chinese researchers on non-viable embryos, which actually showed that the CRISPR, which is uh, the shorthand for it, it's basically find a replace for genomes. So in the same way that you can open up a file in your word processor and replace you know, all of this word with that word, it's basically like that. Um, so that has obviously you know, massive implications. You could make gene therapies with it. You could, you could make designer babies and and so on. But this interesting experiment that the Chinese researchers did showed that actually the find and replace wasn't terribly reliable. And then another technique that has been uh, published this year seems to have a sort of better better version of it. So the reliability is still being worked on. Uh, and the, the good thing is we've just had this conference at the end of the year uh, looking at the ethics of this. Uh, should you be allowed to use this? Uh, and the conclusion of that uh, event was that uh, it was all right to do this sort of research uh, as long as it's not on cells that get passed on to the next generation. So no germline modification so this could be used in therapies, and there are a bunch of uh, CRISPR-based therapies in the pipeline. But so far, the world scientists have sort of got together and made a sort of voluntary uh, agreement that they won't go into germline modification. And it's really just going to be—it's not a legally binding thing. It's just going to be sort of peer pressure that they—they won't—they uh, won't do this, and they'll keep an eye on each other. Now, of course, it's the year 2115. So, Tom Molly, has it worked? I think almost certainly it's worked. I mean, not necessarily CRISPR-Cas9, but I think the idea that one can make skillful, intentional point mutations 
throughout a genome of various different organi- organisms. Yes, I, I really find it incredibly hard. The only thing that makes me think that people won't be doing that routinely would be if they were actually generating genomes. From, if it was cheaper to generate genomes from scratch than to edit existing ones. But I, excuse me, but I did mean, has the moratorium worked or has researchers created new Frankenstein beings? The question of germline cells, I honestly don't know. I'm sure that it will have been tried by some people somewhere. I find it very hard to believe that won't be the case. But whether it has become a gen- generally accepted technology. Because among other things, if you can supplement your intelligence with some form of artificial intelligence, if you can use various other sorts of gene therapy to keep your organs going well, the question of whether you want to change your children or change yourself, the balance is very hard to predict on a long-term cultural basis, I think. But I do think that although, you know, finding a given year in what's clearly a process like um, like the development of genome editing is a bit of a mugs game, it does really feel like the, there's been a sort of like tick in the hockey stick this year on that sort of stuff. Science is a way of foisting discoveries and inventions that only get noticed for their importance. In hindsight, what are the things that we may not notice? I think the one that interests me is I wonder whether, like, like the sonar research was, that we talked about in the previous episode, was, was done in 1915 and kept secret. I wonder whether uh, more progress on quantum computing has been made than, uh, than we know about. And is it the case that you know, the NSA or whoever have actually figured out quantum computing and they just don't want anyone to know about it, like the cracking of the Enigma code or whatever? You know, it just gives them such an advantage of code breaking. Who knows? But it's one of those things where you know, 100 years from now, we may have you know, AIs running on quantum computing substrates and and we say of course you know all of this work was done by x y and z people we haven't heard of who were the 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 people who came up with this research and it all been kept under wraps and that's an area where i think hmm are we seeing the whole picture here oddly that's exactly the area that i was thinking of when we were talking about sonar i was thinking about you know what sort of um new military technologies might we not be aware of that's the obvious one because i think that you know although quantum computing is very difficult and an awful lot of people working on it it's not the sort of field you look at and think it's absolutely inconceivable that someone somewhere is doing something rather better than what's in the open literature, or it might be in quantum computing that doesn't do cryptography but is still somewhere in the black world. Well, that's great. I encourage our listeners to listen in 100 years from now to see what we got right and what we got wrong when we revisit We'll have all year. uploaded ourselves into AIs by then, so we'll be able to go back and listen to this. So a calendar oh. alert for myself, please, 2115. Oh, that's, that's exactly what I'm going to do when I'm uploaded as an AI. I'm so going to go back and listen to all our past podcasts. That will be an absolute top priority. Well, of course, as an AI, you'll be able to consume box sets instantly. This strikes me as being not an advantage at all. <laughs> okay. Actually, that's because you enjoy watching TV, whereas I regard watching box sets as a chore. So then why would you do it even instant? Why would you put any of your valuable CPU microseconds into a box set? <laughs> Thank you. This is the end of the second part of our two-part holiday series, looking at the ghost of Babbage past in 1915 and the ghost of Babbage future. This one at 2115, what was relevant in 2015. For more news on science and technology, please visit economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. The Economist. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. 
What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.